This is an ABC podcast. G'day, beloved listeners, coming to you from uh, Gadigal Country, Late Night Live. Now, there's a lot of things to think about, but I know what is uppermost in your mind, your great concern about the, the, that paradigm of punctuation marks, the exclamation mark. Uh, we've got to know its history. It is a matter of great urgency, and so ever concerned with uh, to make you happy, we'll be exploring that subject a little later in the program. It's a bit of an old home week for us because Yanis uh, Varoufakis is, is going to drop in shortly to talk about his uh, visits to Cuba and Mexico. And uh, But first, but first, it's time to, uh, to talk to Ian Dunt. Ian, of course, is a columnist with the Eye newspaper, and I must say the Eye newspaper looks terribly like an exclamation mark, and he's back for his fortnightly foray into the sordid world of his increasingly uninhabitable homeland. So, Ian, I understand that uh, Ricky Sunak has been forced to do a bit of reshuffling and hasn't very good cards to play. No, not at all. I mean, it was an extremely technocratic reshuffle where he basically sort of stitched together bits of various departments, and all of it perfectly sensible, but sort of baffling as to why you would be doing this right now, 18 months ahead of a general election, when the results won't be felt until afterwards. And yet there was one really noticeable addition, which is a man called Lee Anderson. Lee Anderson is by some considerable distance, uh, the most moronic and intellectually subpar uh, MP in the House of Commons. I mean, I, I literally had to say him on two occasions when asked who the worst MP was. I said, well, it's, it's got to be Lee Anson, just in terms of his performative meanness and fundamental inability to understand even very simple political issues. So naturally, he has now been made the vice chair of the Conservative Party, put a, about as high as you can go in the hierarchy of the governing party. This is done as a sort of sop to the reactionary wing of the party. Anderson's views, I mean, bringing back the death penalty, setting up work camps for welfare claimants. He's, there's a wonderful TV interview, which you can Google, with a man called Michael Crick during the election campaign, where he's sort of taken, he, t- he takes the journalist along on a door-knocking campaign, you know, meeting voters, except buffoon that he is, he leaves his mic on and then goes off to make a phone call. And you can see him calling up the man he's about to knock on the door of and pretend he has no idea who he is, which is a friend <laughs> of his, saying, act like you don't know who I am, but that you're going to vote for me anyway. They go to the door and knock on it, and the man spends most of the time talking how he wants to whip criminals and, and blah, blah, blah. He is really a tremendously, a tremendously unskilled politician and, of course, is now at the upper echelons of our political life. I understand that he once claimed that people could make a meal for 30p. Yes, I mean, it's, it's staggering. It's, but part of his campaign, it, it's almost like he's mathematically devised the least popular thing to say. So he decided to attack nurses who had to use food banks. The reason that nurses are being forced to use food banks, of course, is because they receive very little play and we're in an inflationary crisis. And his response was simply to attack them for not knowing how to cook properly and saying, well, if you, know, if you think about it, you can actually cook a meal for 30p. He then tried to substantiate this line of argument by taking a photo of one of his female members of staff and saying she's single and she has a very low income and she still manages to have a house and pay herself. And you sort of think like, well, I mean, even if you asked her permission to do this, it's a pretty shoddy way to bet, talk about her relationship status and her income. And also, you are responsible for the income, so you, know, you could be paying her more. In other words, he, he is a quite spectacularly foolish man. And yet what has followed from his elevation is this, you know, on the one hand, you look at it and you think, well, this is why Britain is simply no longer a serious country, if this is the kind of person that succeeds. And yet it's actually worse than that. He doesn't succeed despite the fact that he is stupid. He succeeds because he is stupid. 
It is his stupidity, this performative stupidity, that actually gets him the press attention. That means he's talked about on social media, that gets him interviews on television. That then raises his, uh, the, the extent to which he's seen in our political life, and suddenly he becomes talismanic for this whole wing of, of the party that wants to bring back hanging and all of that sort of thing, and he gets to the position. So really he acts as this sort of fail-safe argument for why this country is degenerating quite so quickly in its public and its social life. Deputy PM Dominic Raab, he survived. Well, he's surviving so far. I mean, we, we've still got another few more weeks of the inquiry into him to go. We still, uh, they keep on telling us it's more weeks to go, of these repeated allegations of bullying of predominantly civil service staff. Um, he managed to you know, survive in the reshuffle, which again sort of questions why Sunak did it in the first place. Because if Rob has to go, which most people expect he will, you would then have to have another reshuffle just to sort of put someone in, in his job. It has to be said as well for Rob that the bullying is obviously very, very bad. But it is extraordinary that all of the focus is on that rather than the fact that he has proved completely unable to do his job. This is a man who, uh, he was foreign secretary when the evacuation from Afghanistan took place. He was, at the point that the evacuation took place, uh, at the point that Kabul fell, despite weeks of warnings that this was about to take place, he was on the beach on holiday. He'd had one meeting in the preceding month with an international figure to address the issue. When it came down to the evacuation, the emergency team were trying to send him names of people that they were desperately trying to get out, people who had helped Britain during the war and were at risk of being murdered by the Taliban. He went completely silent for hours on end and then responded to them saying that they hadn't formatted the table correctly. They needed to reformat the table with the names so that he could make the assessment. And in that period, many people were not evacuated who might otherwise have been saved from the hands of the Taliban. So given his track record, and that's just one example, I mean, we could give you dozens of his complete inability to do the job. It's extraordinary that it's only now that we're questioning whether he should be in the position when in any sane society he would have been gotten rid of at least two years ago. Brexit regret dividing the parliament after a, a number of uh, government and opposition MPs attended a summit on the, quote, shortcomings of the UK's departure. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, it really feels like something's shifting at quite high levels now. So figures like Michael Gove, who is in government, the minister, he was absolutely central alongside Boris Johnson to the Leave campaign, meeting up with really strong Remainers like David Lammy, um, Shadow, Secret uh, Shadow Foreign Secretary for Labour, who was a very, very strong on Remain. I mean, this is a guy who came out after the referendum result and went, we don't even need another referendum to overturn it, let's just not do it. Um, they're now meeting up, seemingly in secret, to discuss, well, what kind of common cause is there? What can we do to alleviate the kind of damage that we're seeing? And this has, of course, triggered a flurry of very hysterical coverage in, in the right-wing tabloids, as you would imagine. But that general sense of from the lowest level to the highest level, this pervasive sense of this is not working, part of the economic punishment that we are feeling is as a result of Brexit. And this inexorable turn in the narrative towards Brexit being A, a bad thing, and B, something that must be fixed, which is, of course, a million miles away from the sort of messianic, almost millennialist promises that were made at the time of this is the project that will fix all the country's problems. And this has provoked you into saying that Brexit has to join the great pantheon of catastrophic British errors alongside the Iraq war and the Suez crisis. Yeah, I mean, there's no other way to, to put it at this stage, really. It's... It, it, you know, the damage is obvious in terms of, we now have a very, we have a very clear idea in terms of productivity, in terms of investment, in terms of trade, we are taking damage. But the damage, I think, is even more severe than that, because it, the greatest thing it did to us was distraction. You know, you look at the country now, and there are so many deep-seated, pervasive problems. You know, when you, if you look at social care, if you look at housing, if you look at regional inequality, if you look at climate change, we have addressed none of these things for years on end now, for over half a decade, because of this focus on a project which could only ever do us harm. You know, which in its very best case scenario was a damage limitation exercise 
And essentially, this is the victory of right-wing identity politics over any kind of empirical analysis of what a country might need. So the damage is absolutely unbelievable. And you look, you look at the state now, you look at, for instance, the arguments between the EU and the US on subsidies for green energy. Once upon a time, not so long ago, Britain would have had a very prominent role in that discussion. You know, it was the bridge between the US and Europe. It was involved in those discussions. Now, we just look from outside, sort of wondering which of the great trading giants will win and whether that will happen to be in our favour. And what that is, it happens so fast over really just five, six, seven years, is a significant downgrading in the country's status, self-imposed. It's very likely that the Conservatives will lose the next election. How's Labour going? Is it winning over the business sector? It is. I mean, so this morning, the former uh, CBI chief, the Confederation of British Industry chief, Paul Dreschler, came out and basically said, look, it, you know, business people just need to go start talking to Labour now. I mean, we know which way it's going. They're sensible people. We need to just start making the shift. That's a pretty decisive moment. Whenever you see that movement of business, business is quite small, C conservative. It doesn't really want to mess around, doesn't want to rot the boat too much. It'll start making the overtures, making the conversations when it sees which way the wind is blowing. And they've seen which way the wind is blowing. I mean, last week we had uh, an MRP poll. That's MRP is multi-level regression and pro-stratification analysis, which essentially takes demographic elements of the population and inputs them into a polling mechanism. It's profound, I mean, almost like witchcraft in terms of the accuracy with which it predicts results. I mean, it puts the Tories at the election on 45 seats, going down from 365 seats in 2019. That's an extra, I mean, basically what they're talking about when you look at the polling now is an extinction level event for the Conservative Party. They're talking about having less seats than the Scottish National Party, which was being put on 50. So really at this stage, Many things can change. You know, the polling lead can narrow. Labour isn't complacent. But at the moment, you're looking at it and the sense is taking over in Westminster, among journalists, among politicians, among civil servants of this is a thing that is happening now. It looks like the Conservatives are not just going towards defeat, but towards absolutely catastrophic defeat. To end on a cheerful note, tell me about GB News. I thought I did end on a cheerful note talking about an extinction-level event for the Conservatives. I don't know how to get any happier than that. Uh, GV News is... Uh, it was set up as a sort of British Fox News attempt and didn't do very well. I mean, the early stages, catastrophic sort of technical inability meant that it just looked like it was being performed by schoolchildren. But then it found a way to secure an audience. And the way it's found is essentially to spread right-wing conspiracy theories, predominantly about covid but also a little bit about Ukraine as a money laundering operation for the Democrat Party in the US, all complete tosh. And yet it is able to pump this stuff out without really almost any intervention by Ofcom, the regulator. It's had two small inquiries, but the rest of the time it seems almost completely wrong-footed. The regulator was really set up for a world of quite gentlemanly conduct by the BBC and Sky News and everyone knew how to do balance and impartiality and objective information and it didn't have to do much. Now it's being presented with these really upstart tribalist outlets spreading absolute disinformation and it doesn't really seem to know how to deal with it. So for the time being at least it's getting away with it but there's now growing pressure to say look Ofcom really needs to get a grip on this stuff and it needs to do it very quickly indeed. Ian thanks for that. Ian Dunt columnist with the I newspaper and Ian will be back in a fortnight. Coming up Yanis Varoufakis. If you're uh, finding it harder to make ends meet or facing the horrors of trying to get yourself into secure housing or affording health care, or maybe you're feeling a bit nervous about the future as the war in Ukraine drags on and tensions rise between the West and China, then you're not very different to most people around the world. So what are the answers to the problems we face globally, like the cost of living, inflation, climate change? My guest is a long-time friend of the program, and he's been thinking deeply about these issues 
for a very long time. Janis Varoufakis is leader of the Democracy in Europe movement in Greece's parliament, where he was uh, formerly, of course, finance minister. And he's also a professor of economics at the University of Athens. He was recently invited to both Cuba and Mexico to discover the possibilities of a new way forward. So it's time to get him back to tell us how his visits went. Janis, welcome home. But first, please, an update on the plight of Julian Assange. Are you there, Janis? It uh, continues. Uh, hello. Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, good, good. Uh, Julian's plight, Philip, as you know very well, is continuing. He's fading in a tiny cell in the Belmarsh uh, version of Britain's Guantanamo Bay. Uh, the extradition order is hanging over him. Our only hope at this stage is that there is some kind of understanding between Albanese, the Australian Prime Minister and Biden. Um, the campaign is um, gathering pace. I don't believe there, there is any um, decently thinking person in the world who doesn't want Julian's ordeal to end. Uh, all of us uh, who have been on his side for many years uh, have... Uh, um, I, I, we have been very encouraged by what uh, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, said to me uh, 10 days ago in Mexico City, that he's uh, doing his utmost to convince the United States to let go, to stop torturing a man whose only crime is to have informed us of crimes performed by our governments, supposedly in our name. Janus, what were your first impressions of Cuba? Because it was your first visit. Cuba is going through the worst period in, in its history since the Cuban Revolution. The port is barren. The embargo is harsher than ever, Philip. Uh, there is no way of sending money into Cuba. No remittances since Donald Trump completely overturned Barack Obama's attempt to loosen the embargo. Uh, the place looks uh, dilapidated. There is no doubt that this is a massive economic crisis. But I have to tell you, um, I was thinking while I was walking in the streets of Havana that compared to my town, Athens, Athens looks much richer, more developed. But you know what, Philip? I look at the faces of people walking around Athens after 13 years of power crisis here. They look mostly dispossessed, humiliated, our democracy a sham. Whereas when I looked at the faces of people in Havana, you know what I saw? I saw pride. I saw smiles, beautiful music, solidarity. They are managing to squeeze a very high quality, first world quality of life out of a total catastrophe. Don't forget that they have one of the best health systems in the world. They managed to develop three very successful vaccines on their own under this embargo during the pandemic. Uh, they have first-class education. They're doctors, engineers, um, you know, um, philologists uh, have a level of education that uh, in Australia and in Greece and in Europe, um, you know, we can only envy. So it is a mixed bag. Is the, Biden offering any sort of olive branch like uh, Obama did? It frustratingly, absolutely not. Uh, in 2015, I had an opportunity to have a discussion with Obama during the last months of his presidency. And of course, back then I was the finance minister of Greece and I was uh, concerned about Greece. And, you know, he essentially said to me that he's a lame duck president. It was the last few months in his uh, in, the, in office in the White House. But he said to me that there are two things that he wants to do before he leaves the presidency. One was to de-escalate tensions with Iran and end the standoff between the West and Iran. 
uh, with uh, that treaty, you will recall, regarding the denuclearization of Iran. And the second thing he said he wanted to do was to end the, and that's quoting Barack Obama, the um, very harsh embargo on Cuba. And I have to say that he did both. But then, of course, Donald Trump came in and overturned both successes of Obama, some of the very few successes of the Obama administration, he overturned them in a jiffy. And the great frustration is that Obama's vice president at the time becomes president of the United States and does absolutely nothing to um, put right both those debacles, the standoff between the United States, the West and Iran, and the embargo of Cuba. Is this because he's fear of someone living in Florida? Look, well, you have to ask his administration, uh, but it would have been quite straightforward for somebody like Joe Biden to simply say, look, folks, I'm simply doing that which Barack Obama did in the last few months of office. If you look at the way in which, setting aside Iran and Cuba for a moment, Joe Biden is jeopardizing world peace and our future as a species by turbocharging the new Cold War that Donald Trump started against China. Remember last October, Joe Biden effectively issued a declaration of total economic warfare against China. That was the microchip embargo. When you tell a country like China that I'm going to do my utmost to prevent you from acquiring advanced microchips, not just for your military, but for any use in your country, effectively you're telling China that I am going to ensure you did not become a technologically advanced country. Whoever says that to China is declaring an economic war against China. So it's not just Assange. It is not just Cuba. It's not just Iran. There's also China. Joe Biden's foreign policy is a complete catastrophe in the sense that he did not um, roll back or roll back Donald Trump's uh, adventurism. Instead of that, he turbocharged it. Well, you, you've been saying that the U.S. is leading a, quote, new audacious imperialism, which you call neo-imperialism. Well, yes, he's been doing it since 1971. <laughs> since your great friend Richard Nixon, remember, 15th August 1971, Richard Nixon did something that was smart from his perspective, and maybe it could not have been done otherwise. Uh, our uh, listeners will recall that between 1944 and 1971, we had a very strange global monetary system. Um, it was a version of the gold standard, which was a dollar standard, effectively. All our currencies, the Australian dollar, the Greek drachma, the French franc, were had a fixed exchange rate with the dollar, which had a fixed exchange rate with gold. Gold in Fort Knox, in the New York Federal Reserve vaults, underground. If you had $35, you could exchange it for an ounce of American gold. Well, that could, could not continue because America had become a deficit country. So when you're in deficit, when the United States was in deficit, let's say to France, dollars were flowing into France. And then maybe you will recall a certain gentleman, uh, President Pompidou of France, who sent a frigate full of American dollars to New Jersey to exchange them for American gold. That ended. Now, why is this connected to my story about neo-imperialism? Well, because the moment the convertibility of dollars to gold stopped, ended on the 15th of August, 1971 by Richard Nixon, both the private sector and the central banks of the West, including Australia, could no longer convert their dollars American dollars into gold. So they had to use America's currency as the reserves on which the Australian dollar, the French franc, the Deutsche Mark, and so on, um, you know, drew their value from. So in a sense, the Americans were increasing their imports from the rest of the world, 
that they couldn't pay for because they were increasingly in the red, in a deficit. But the rest of the world's capitalists, German capitalists, Japanese capitalists, and later Chinese capitalists, who were amassing all those dollars, had no alternative but to send their dollars back to Wall Street to invest them in real estate, in derivatives, in American debt, and so on. Now, that is a remarkable form of imperialism in the sense that the empire has managed to increase its capacity to live off other people's labor and have the capitalists of the rest of the world, the wealthy of the rest of the world, send their loot, <laughs> their profits, back to the metropolis. You know, the Roman Empire never succeeded in doing this. The British Empire never succeeded in doing that. America had managed it. And now we have, for the first time, a possibility of a challenge to this. And this challenge is coming from China because of the development of a new form of wealth creation, which is, as you know, um, based on the cloud, with cloud computing, with um, uh, algorithmic capital, with a new form of capital, which China is pretty good at producing against the combined forces of Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Well, that's an extraordinary thing to contemplate. Let's go back to uh, Mexico and Cuba. They've always had a, well, been a, in a sort of political brotherhood, and you've already mentioned your uh, your admiration for the, n the new Mexican president. How are they coping with the problems we're all facing to a greater or lesser degree? Philip, to the extent that you know me, um, I'm not an easy customer. <laughs> I, I had a fantastic conversation with uh, President López Obrador. He's a brilliant man and he's extremely charismatic. But, you know, I, I also stated my points of disagreement with him because I do believe that friends and comrades have to be frank. So his commitment to fossil fuels is not one that I can live happily with. So we had a little, um, let's say, brisk exchange on this. But I have to tell you that um, he really, truly impressed me not only because of his very brave support of a mutual friend, Julian Assange, but because, look, he has the whole of the oligarchic establishment in Mexico against him. The press, the media, radio, television, and so on, except for the state-owned ones, are totally against him. Like It reminded me of how I felt when I was in the, in the government here in 2015, the whole of the gamut of the press against us. and. It's amazing how he deals with it. I don't know whether you know that, but the president of Mexico holds a press conference. This is quite daunting. Every morning at 7.30, Philip, he holds a two-hour press conference every morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He's got all these journalists from uh, media that are very hostile to him, and he says to them, okay, fire away. Tell me what I've done wrong. And he has a two-hour televised live, you know, Mexicans have their breakfast, <laughs> watching their president have it out live on television with uh, inimical journalists. And there are occasions... Excuse me, Gunners, do they actually watch? Absolutely. It is, uh, it, it, it is a great show every morning because he puts on a great show. He engages with his critics from the press. He treats them with respect. And sometimes, often, almost every week, when there is an issue where he can't convince them, where there's, it's an important issue, let's say, for instance, uh, you know, regarding the price of uh, petrol at the petrol stations or uh, other issues that, emerge spontaneously during these discussions with the press. You know what he does? He says, okay, all right, so you believe X and I believe Y. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to conduct an opinion poll today. There is a state-sponsored and supposedly quite well-respected opinion poll company. Uh, I'm going to ask them to poll the nation, X or Y. Do they agree with you or do they agree with me? And by tomorrow we'll have the result, and I commit that whatever the people tell us through the opinion poll company that they want, this is what's going to happen tomorrow morning in the Congress. Well, that's, then, of course, that's absolutely inspirational. And we should also take some comfort that in Latin America we've seen uh, progressive governments winning in recent elections. The tropical Trump, for example, is gone. 
Indeed, that is a major victory for humanity, the demise, the political demise of Bolsonaro. Uh, a true blue fascist, or true black, I should say, or brown fascist. Um, a, a clear and present danger to not just Brazilian democracy, but to the Amazon, to the indigenous people. A great ally of Donald Trump, of Modi in India, in India, of, of the inter, of the nationalist international, as I call them. Uh, but let me also sound a warning here, Philip. Uh, this wave of progressive governments, Chile to uh, Honduras to Brazil, um, it's a. <laughs> I welcome it. But remember, there was another such wave. 20 years ago. Uh, and that one was based on a very sound economic foundation caused by China. Because 20 years ago, when Lula was uh, president the first time during his, his first two term, terms, he could rely on China buying everything that Brazil was producing, from soya beans to small aircraft. Uh, so the whole of the Latin American continent received a major boost 20 years ago from Chinese growth back then. This time around, this is not happening. So all these progressive governments that are sweeping through Latin America are now facing a cost of living crisis, an energy crisis, a world that is stagnating, climate change, and they do not have the kind of backup that they had from Chinese demand 20 years ago. In 60 seconds or less, Ukraine. We need immediately a peace process. A peace process involving the United States, China, maybe India, uh, certainly the European Union, even though we have no idea who would represent us because we, <laughs> we are headless, we have no representation in the European Union. Um, and a peace treaty must be struck quickly to end this absolutely appalling bloodshed. Uh, I very much fear that this war is going to continue. It will become a quagmire, a cross between Afghanistan and the Great War, trench warfare. Um, and I think that the basis of a decent treaty, one that leaves everybody slightly dissatisfied, but in the end, it is a good foundation for building peace would be the withdrawal of Russian troops to where they were before the 24th of February, um, Ukraine um, becoming neutral, committing to not being part of NATO, a kind of Good Friday Northern Ireland agreement for the Donbass area where there are two communities ill at ease with one another, uh, with guarantees from the United States, from the United Kingdom, from Australia, from the European Union of such a rational resolution. Janus, thank you immensely for coming back to the program. Janus Varoufakis, leader of the Democracy in Europe movement in Greek Parliament, and of course he wears any number of other hats. Coming up, beloved listeners, the exclamation mark, the most maligned of all punctuation marks, because Donald loved it too much. The screamer, the slammer, the bang, the gasper, the shriek. These are all names that have been given at various times to that most provocative of punctuation marks, the exclamation point. Since its invention, it has elicited the scorn of many a writer. Scott Fitzgerald declared that exclamation marks are like laughing at your own joke. And journalist Philip Cowell called them the selfies of grammar. Uh, their reputation has certainly suffered since they were used and abused on Twitter by the Donald. But does the exclamation mark deserve to languish at the bottom of the punctuation hierarchy? Or can it be resuscitated? I wholeheartedly believe in its use. And so I'm delighted to welcome to the Little Wallace program Dr. Florence Hattrat. Florence is a scholar of English literature, a BBC New Generation thinker, 
a folk fiddler, I must get her to come back and play the folk fiddle, and a podcaster. She's also the author of a beaut book called An Admirable Point, a brief history of the exclamation mark. And she joins us now from Berlin. Welcome to the Little Wireless Program. You are a passionate advocate of the exclamation point. Where did this begin? Thank you for having me. I love chatting about the exclamation mark. So my interest actually starts with brackets. I'm a literature scholar. Um, I I work on the Renaissance period and uh, I was reading about brackets in the Renaissance and about punctuation, where it came from. And um, I came up against um, negative attitudes towards the exclamation mark again and again. So people thought they were childish, they were hysterical, they were useless, they were... They were um, over the top and loud and shrieky. And I thought, well, this can't be really the whole story. And I was hoping that I was finding some defense of the exclamation mark, but I couldn't. And then I was thinking, okay, somebody has to do something about this. And <laughs> that someone turned out to be me. Well, it couldn't have found a better ambassador. And uh, you've done a great job. Let's journey back. Tell us when and how it was born. The exclamation mark was born in the middle of the 14th century. So that um, there was a scholar called Alpoleo da Urbisalia. He was a, a lawyer and a, a scholar and a lover of literature and of language. And he wrote a treatise called The Art of Punctuating. He wrote that in Latin. And he was writing about how uh, what, ex- uh, what punctuation marks were around and how people were using them. In fact, there were not very many around. It was just the full stop, the comma, the colon and the, the question mark. And he said uh, that he was really annoyed that people were reading sentences that were exclamations, um, exclamations of wonder or admiration, as if they were just sentences or just questions. And so he said, he said, well, we need a mark that tells us that those are really sentences that express something wonderful and we have to change our voice, we have to change the tone. He said we should put a full stop at the bottom of the line and an apostrophe sort of dangling from the top of the line. It's interesting, and, though. He describes it, but he didn't put yeah. it on the page. Exactly, exactly. It's it's curious. I'm, I'm not sure why, <laughs> but he just describes it. And it took another punctuation lover to translate this description into the actual shape, and that was Coluccio Salutati 50 years later in 1399. Um, who put the first exclamation mark form on the page. He and also then, then printers took it up. Exactly. We wouldn't have the exclamation mark today unless it didn't somehow find its way into um, books or manuscripts that printers were using. And once printers were using them, they spread all over. So before the exclamation mark, there was no real way to express emotions in a text. That's right, you could say so. There was the question mark that told us something about tone and about the change of our voice. But other than that, the other marks were there in order to mark grammar or the syntactical style. So the exclamation mark is really the first sign that brings personality, that brings feeling into text. So when does the backlash begin? The backlash actually begins quite late. So... um, Around the late 17th century, early 18th century, people started to understand what kinds of exclamations or emotions they were able to use the mark. And then 200 years later, at the beginning of the 20th century, only then do we have these negative opinions because back in the days, people were happy to use whatever they could in order to write in a persuasive way. The goal of writing was to be convincing and to make the other person feel something and perhaps change their mind to move them. But then in the early 20th century, we started to um, become maybe suspicious of feeling and, and of emotion in text. And so only then do we start to have these negative opinions about anything that is a little bit off-centre, let's say. It was uh, recruited, however, for the war, wasn't it? 
Yes, that's right. So you have war uh, propaganda posters in the Second World War that were using the exclamation mark in order to get attention from people as they were passing walls, for example, in the public space, or um, to create enthusiasm or also, again, to move them to do something, to be careful, to darken their, their houses, for example. I have a vivid memory of the being used and overused in comics. My particular favourite was Batman comics, and that was full of exclamation marks. Bang, a pow. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and there's actually potentially a technical context to that because in the early days, um, comics were obviously cheap. They were printed very quickly, and there wasn't a lot of. Um, a lot of effort going on in, in, into the technical, the design side. So when printers were putting ink on the on the page in order to print it, it could happen that the full stop didn't catch a lot of ink. So it was very often safer to put an exclamation mark because then you have more potential for the the signs to catch ink. So that might be one of the reasons why there's so mu- there are so many exclamation marks in comics, but also of course that we have the sound. We're thoroughly enjoying an encounter with Dr. Florence Hazrat. And uh, Florence, I have a lifelong passion for the ancient Egyptians, but never found one, never found an exclamation mark in the hieroglyphs. What are they, what happens in other languages? What happens in Chinese, in Mandarin, in Persian? Well, exclamation marks are actually everywhere in, in most of the languages that I have that I have looked at, they are also in sign language, they are also in Braille, so like um, in writing for blind people when they read with their with their fingertips. So they really are everywhere. And you can very often read something about the um, recent histories of the languages or of the cultures that uh, that have and contain punctuation because, for example, in terms of Japanese and, and um, different Chinese dialects, it was through colonialism that uh, punctuation, the way the, the sort of Western punctuation came to the East. The same uh, goes for Arabic and for Hebrew, actually, although those two are very, very interesting because both of them were used in different ways to, for, for nation-making. So you have um, settlers from Europe who go to Israel and who, of course, want to re-infuse um, Hebrew in, in order and make it readable. Ancient Hebrew is very difficult, so they make it new, they make it modern, and they use their European punctuation marks in order for people to navigate text. And Arabic experienced something quite similar, where um, the sort of uh, Arabic writers in the late 19th, early 20th century noticed that they were writing in French or in English and not in Arabic because Arabic is very, very difficult and you have to have a lot of training to be able to read it and to write it. And so they said, okay, we need to change this. We need to also make Arabic accessible for for people who are not extremely educated. Let's use um, punctuation marks in order to make it easier to read. And then they happen to also import Western punctuation marks. So in that context, punctuation marks work in a subversive way because they sort of are anti-colonial, whereas sometimes we can read um, colonial influences through them as well. I'm astonished to learn from you that uh, in Spanish, uh, an upside-down exclamation mark can begin a sentence as a sort of warning sign. Yes, that's right. So it's supposed to make you ready for what's to come. Spanish speakers tell me that they're not using that all the time. So maybe in official writing, they would be using that. But if they just write to their to their friends, if they send a text message, they don't use that all the time, which I find interesting because I think it tells us something about us not really wanting to be prepared all the time and, and keeping that little bit of ambiguity and of having to guess and interpret. There's no ambiguity in the fact that Americans uh, seem to use exclamation marks 16 times more than the Brits. That's right. There's a, a linguistics professor at the University of Suffolk who um, didn't do an official study, but who looked at some Amazon reviews of the same books in the UK and in the US. And she realized that Americans seem to be using the exclamation mark, which they call exclamation point, much, much more often, which is 
intuitively, subjectively something I think that we can agree on that perhaps there's something a bit bigger and, and, and louder of American culture. It's interesting to me that uh, Salman Rushdie, a guest on the program from time to time, is an enthusiast for uh, for the um, exclamation mark. You, you've someone's counted them up, and there are well over two thousand marks in Midnight's Children alone. That's right. It's fascinating that that um, the genre that Rushdie was writing in at the time, magical realism is, I think, predetermined to have these strong signs that are so there on the page because it's so lush and full and and full of images as well. And interestingly, Midnight's Children has won the Booker Prize. It has won the Booker of Bookers twice. So that's like uh, a competition among all the Booker Prize winners. So there must be something about the, those exclamation marks that really <laughs> attracts us. Hemingway. Now, he, of course... Uh tried to minimise the use of uh, adjectives, let alone punctuation. And you make the point that he abhorred the punctuation mark. You know, it was one in Old Man and the Sea, my least favourite novel of his. It ruined it for me. Yes, I can understand that. And there's a single exclamation mark in that novel where the old man has finally caught a fish and he realizes it's a huge fish and he's preparing himself to pull it out. And then um, he he gets himself ready. He says, now, exclamation mark, and he pulls on the, on, the, um, on the line, but the fish doesn't come out. And the next sentence is nothing happens. So that's an, a literary anticlimax. <laughs> now, did Jane Austen use them or not? She did. She did. Just that they were edited out of her writing. So, unfortunately, I'm sorry. Say so, so that again. They were taken out. Yes, they were taken out of her writing by her editor and her publisher, who perhaps were thinking they were doing it some good. That's what they were writing in their um, correspondence as well. So uh, we have a couple of uh, pages of Jane Austen's Persuasion. That's her last novel. And um, she is underlining things. She's scratching things out. She's squeezing sentences between the lines. She has capitalization and she has exclamation marks. And those we can then trace in the printed text and see what was what was taken out. And the Bard of Avon, if you please. Yes, well, uh, Shakespeare has uh, 350 exclamation marks in his main works, his collected works, which is actually very, very little thinking if we if we think about that this is a 900-page book full of exclaiming and it's a theatrical book, so you would expect a lot of emotion in there. But at the time, in the early 17th century, people didn't really yet understand for what sentences to use ex exclamation marks and what is the difference between a question and an exclamation mark. For us nowadays, it seems pretty clear, but if we read some, some examples, it actually is sometimes a bit murkier. And at the time as well, we have to remember that they only had a certain amount of exclamation marks or of letters for that matter. And sometimes it was just a question of uh, whether they had any type left that they could use or, or they would maybe have to reuse something else, maybe put a dot in an ap apostrophe. So um, we also don't know how far Shakespeare was involved in the printing of his own plays. We don't have any manuscript left except for three pages of a co-written play in which he hardly uses any point punctuation at all. There's just a couple of commas and some full stops and that's it. Which perhaps was because Shakespeare knew he was writing for some actors who would translate his text into emotion anyway, so it wasn't necessary for him to put in anything. Perhaps it was a bit of laziness, a bit of sloppiness on the on the part of the great the great poet. But um those in those times and in those histories, there's a lot that we have to remember in terms of co-writing, co-creation, who is involved in making this text um, come into print. What about the differences in male and female usage, Florence? Well, there are some studies that show that women tend to use exclamation marks much more, at least in online writing or digital writing. Uh, actually three times as as often as men. But then if we look at it, the context that women use them for, it's very often to be friendly, to create an inclusive environment, to be helpful, for example. And I think it's, it's undeniable that a message that says, 
no problem exclamation mark comes across as friendlier than no problem or welcome exclamation mark so women tend to use um, something like emojis exclamation marks or um, deliberately wrong spelling in order to create a, a warm atmosphere in a medium that is so disembodied you cite a 2013 study where exclamation points were flashed before people's eyes what happened well, people were put into scanners and they were sort of participating in a little game after which then they had to take decisions and they were thinking they were playing with another person. They were actually playing with a computer and the computer refused to give them their reward. And then people saw these flashes of exclamation marks on the screen and afterwards they had to decide how they felt. How was it to play with the supposedly other person and, and with not getting their reward? And then uh, they were able to choose from different options, including fair, unfair, very unfair. And people who saw the exclamation mark would choose very unfair for their experience. And in, in the scanner, um, the scientists could see that the parts of the prefrontal cortex activated. So that is the part where we judge. And um, it's not the part that is full on panic. You need to run away or you need to fight or flight, but it's the part before panic, so when we need to when we need to decide whether we want to pay more attention, so seeing an exclamation mark makes you a little bit alert. Writ large, of course, there's the road sign, isn't there? The biggest exclamation mark I can think of. Exactly, um, exclamation marks are everywhere around us when we sort of start opening our eyes. Underground subway doors, for example, elevators on the road, um, and they always warn us: you need to pay attention here. Not sure what is happening, but something is happening. You need to watch out and be ready. Are they doomed by the emojis? No, I don't think they are. Um, emojis are supposed to bring emotion into a text as well, just as the exclamation mark. But emojis have sort of become something else. They have become quite complicated in the detail and the nuance that we have them now. And new emojis are, keep being invented. And it's quite beautiful and I think welcoming that, um, or welcome that they are very inclusive with people in wheelchairs, different skin colors, different genders, different sexualities, where you have a man and a man holding hands, for example, that an emoji that you can choose. But um, it's a little bit counterproductive for the informality of the medium of texting and for the spontaneity that we think we are just in the same room talking, but actually we're still texting. So I think with emoji, people have to do twice the amount of interpretation than when they just see an, an exclamation mark. How many exclamation marks do you use? Are you uh, OTT or reticent? Oh, I think I'm uh, like lots of other people that I adapt to the context and to the person I'm writing to. And once also people, uh, the conversation is about exclamation marks, everybody becomes very self-conscious. I get emails <laughs> from people being very self-conscious suddenly, <laughs> but I'm happy to use them. Well, I, I have to litter the airwaves with exclamation marks to register my delight in our conversation. Dr. Florence Hazrat, scholar of English literature and the author of An Admirable Point, a brief history of, yes, the exclamation mark, out now in Australia from Ellen uh, Unwin. And that's your lot on our next Another Asia update. This time we're uh, heading to China, Hong Kong, Taiwan and uh, talking, I'm sure, a little about the balloon, hullabaloo. And we'll hear about an Ethiopian prince who was stolen by the Brits. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.